Tēnā koutou katoa, ko whakaroi kamaine, i te rane, mi anoi tatou, let us pray. Hangia e te atua, he nākau hau, ki roto, ki tēnei, ki tēnei o tatou, whakatongia tō wairua tapu, he awhina. He tohutohu i a mātou, ki a tūtohi pai ai tā tatou, hui nei, amine. Father, create a new heart in each of us. Build us by your Holy Spirit. Help us, guide us, make our meeting fruitful. Amen. E te mātua, me te tamaiti, me te wāroa tapu, tēnā koe. E te Lane Park Church, e tūnei, e te hahi o te karaiti, e tūnei, e tūnei, e tūnei. I nga tangata whenua, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, katoa, ki nga kākou, ko Dean, ko Gina, tēnā kōrua. Ko Waiō, ko Slaifoi te maunga, ko Carlingford Lock te awa, ko Makevit te iwi, ko Bruce, toku papa, ko Jeanette, toku mama, ko Nicola, toku tuahine, ko David, ko Samuel, aku taina, ko Anna, ho rangatera, ko Levi, toku tama, ko... Aaron Toko Ingoa, nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Good morning. For most of last year, I spent three hours each week at the Scripture Union building, sweating, struggling, making my way, eating my way, come on the kai, through the level one and two uh, certificate in Te uh, Arareo Māori uh, through Te Wānanga o Aotearoa. And for me, aside from a cursory brushing past kind of knowledge uh, from school and a, something of an understanding of how the vowels worked, uh, this whole thing to me was new. Uh, I could sing the national anthem, uh, the first verse in Māori, and I could um, have a go at other things and place names and that sort of thing. But uh, it was a lot of learning. And uh, I did feel like I was drowning quite a lot. I felt that uh, as um, I looked at my classmates, they seemed to be fluent already, and I seemed to be um, the introductory phrases and the little sprinkles um, that seemed to be known by everybody else uh, eluded me for a while. Each week I would drive into town and I would um, park the car and walk up the stairs, and I just have this feeling of like, oh, like I should probably just quit. I'm not going to get this. And I'd be walking up and I'd be on the cusp of entering and I was this feeling of dread and like, no, no, I should, I should finish. And then someone would spot me through the door and they would wave and smile and I would be committed for another week. <laughs> but um, for three hours each week, I entered into another culture, a culture where I was a minnow and didn't know anything, which for an able-bodied, uh, well-educated white male, that's, that's a rare experience. Um, as we prepared Mihi Mihi, I considered my uh, papa in ways that I never had before. Uh, suddenly it mattered where I'd come from. Um, the, uh, my maunga is uh, in, outside of Carlingford in Ireland, where my grandfather grew up desperately poor before he became a sailor and immigrated to New Zealand. As we considered Te Tiriti o Waitangi, I cringed heavily at some of the conversations that I'd had in the past. But I grew in hope uh, for our nation as I knew and learned and understood more about uh, the basis on which we are founded. My favorite thing that I learned 
uh, was the Māori customs for um, mihimi and, and pōwhiri because, I guess, through school and those sorts of things, you're part of these experiences. And um, up until then, I didn't really know what was going on. I knew that it was good to be respectful and that sort of thing, but, like, this thing came to life, and I now understood what people were saying. Words became stories and histories and families. Something had been going on that I'd been a part of many times, and now I could make some sense of it. Uh, I've been given the chance to speak this week and next week, and I've called these two weeks uh, The Soil and the Seed. And uh, I just aim to share what I've found useful in navigating this late modern culture uh, that we live in. This week is The Soil, and I'm hoping to be as useful as possible in describing and providing a new lens, maybe, for understanding this modern world that we live in, this secular age that we live in. And next week, the seed, I hope to refresh and update and bring um, something useful for how we best uh, plant the seed, the hope um, of the world into this culture, and how we can deliver that in such a way that it has the best chance of germinating. So these titles, they sound biblical, that's a plus, that's always a plus, and Uh, We're going to read the story from which they come. So turn to Mark chapter 4, verses. we're going to read verses 1 to 20, or Google that thing if you need to. While you do, and in preparation, imagine one of the experiences that you've had when you've been crowded in on at an event. Maybe a time in Cuba Street where you stopped um, at an amazing busker that was absolutely worth your time. And you're maybe in the second row, and then you get pressed in on as everybody wants to see, they want to get a glimpse of this person that's doing this amazing thing. Or maybe think about, if you're a concert goer, that feeling that you've got as everybody presses forward as the main act is about to come on. That Put yourself into that mode as we read this story. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat on it out in the lake. While all the people were along the shore at the water's edge, he taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprung up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. Then Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When they were alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but those on the out, to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like the seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. 
But since they have no root, they only last a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they fall away quickly. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. So this is Jesus' foundation parable, his parable about listening. It is presented first in each of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Jesus is speaking to a massive crowd, so big that he needs to sit out in a boat so that everybody can crowd the lakefront. He describes an image of a farmer just sowing seed indiscriminately, and he describes the types of uh, results that come of that. And he says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Later on, his disciples hit him up and ask him for the full story. And he talks about the actions of each of these listeners, tying directly the quality of the listening with the actions that result. This is the essence of what I'm hoping to communicate this week and next week, this rich, deep call from Jesus, this call of he who has, whomever has ears, let him hear. Will we... And will I and will you be people who truly listen? Listen to those around us, listen to the heartbeat of culture, and most of all, develop and maintain a listening ear to the Spirit of God and His Word and put what we hear into practice. My entry into Te Ao Māori culture was organized, uh, it was distinct. Uh, there were people helping me, there were people encouraging me, they were warm. Uh, but it was also abrupt. My day was full conversations, Excel spreadsheets, 360-degree feedback, and then bam, ahaka mana pana Sometimes another culture crashes in on us like that. Every time we start a new job, we enter a new culture. Throughout the transitions of life, through starting school or moving schools, starting university, starting a job, retirement, those transport us into another culture. Sometimes another culture crashes in on us through a tragic event, the death of somebody that we love, the loss of a relationship through a divorce or an estrangement. These situations throw us instantly into a culture and into a situation that doesn't feel anything like home. But sometimes culture changes slowly. What if... Gradually, almost imperceptibly, the winds of change have been blowing and in the busyness of making marriage work and taking kids to school and to sports events and that sort of stuff, we occasionally get this little whisper of the winds of change blowing, but we actually don't realize what's happening until it collides with us. It crashes into us or we crash into it. And this collision of culture, and in particular this dislocation feeling, um, that comes with it is a major theme that the Bible has a lot to talk about, and that is the theme of exile. Exile could even be described as the main experience of Israel throughout the Old Testament. Often, and most of the time, it was uh, an exile from God's um, hearing God's voice and having His presence. 
the people would turn to God and things would go well and then they would forget and they would lose God and God would at some stage declare them so um, needing to be left to their own devices that he would separate his presence from them until they turned back. But also there was eventually a physical uh, exile. Jerusalem was overrun. Uh, The nation had been warned and warned and warned and um, eventually the Babylonian Empire came in and Israel was exiled to Babylon. The Israelites' hearing had got so bad that they experienced exile from God and exile from the promised land, exile from freedom to life in captivity and servitude. The poor hearing of the Israelites wasn't uh, because of a lack of God speaking to them. Jeremiah was the prevailing prophet, in the lead up to the actual physical exile. And God called him to be a lone voice, declaring the truth for 23 years until the actual exile took place. He was the lone voice standing up to all of the other prophets and their, it's not going to be that bad, messages. God had him preach and live out the truth to Judah for 23 years before Babylon actually broke through Jerusalem's walls. After call after call to obedience was ignored, uh, this exile happens. And after all of these messages that Jeremiah had been given, which were turn, turn away, turn back, this bad event is coming, this bad event is going to happen. He receives this message from God to give to the people, uh, which is a message of uh, reality, but it's also a message of encouragement. And it was a message shared in the form of a letter, a reality check message. In the freshness of exile, there were a bunch of false prophets claiming to hear from God, saying, you know, it's all good, guys. It's only going to be for a couple of years. God's going to bring us back. And Jeremiah was called to share the truth with the people. So turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. Start from verse 4, which is the, the guts of the letter. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. 
For those taken to exile uh, from to Babylon, the exile was truly shocking. They had watched their friends and neighbors starve to death while the city had been under siege for a year. Uh, they had seen there had been rape and killing and battle and, and all of those hideous things. They had to walk to Babylon. And when they got there, the Babylonian culture that they entered was another language. Um, the language was different. The worship was different. Order would have been different. Community was different. Would have been full of the humiliation of defeat, the pain of losing loved ones. Every sight would have been eye-opening. Every sound would have been new. But over time, they would have gotten used to it. They would have gotten along. They would have made their way. In time, the absolutely foreign culture would have become familiar. And many of the exiles did take up Jeremiah's instruction. They built houses, settled down, planted gardens, had families. By the time you'd got into that third generation, Babylon would have been the only heir that these exiled grandchildren the grandchildren of the exiles would ever have breathed. That's the only culture they would have ever known. Things that their grandparents still remembered with fondness, maybe the trips to the temple to, at the feasts of the year, or um, those sort of cultural things that their grandparents loved and maybe still remembered would just be stories to these people. It would have taken these third-generation exiles a deliberate work and deliberate effort to be able to even imagine a life outside of Babylon. So, how about us in the age that we live in? Some of you may be like those first-generation exiles. Maybe you lived at a time when the nation stopped on Sundays and everybody went to church. Maybe you've got fond memories of the way that uh, you gathered with your whole family, that everybody came along, when Christian values were the norm. Maybe you're from the next generation, you have a few fond memories from your childhood, but those, I guess, have long since become false memories, uh, not false, fond memories. Um, or maybe you are like, uh, perhaps, what it feels like to be someone like myself, and this is the only culture that you've ever known. Like those third generation exiles, we need to put in deliberate effort to even imagine another way of thinking. We need to work to understand and actually see this culture, see the things that we take for just being the way that things are. So I've just got a little bit of heavy lifting this morning on the thinking department. Just warning, maybe do some stretches, maybe take a glass of water. As, as far as I can tell from my research, the person who has described the secular age, um, who's the go-to source, is a gentleman by the name of Charles Taylor, and he's a Canadian Catholic philosopher who has written a book called A Secular Age, which uh, seems to be, as far as my Christian sort of uh, library is concerned, the, the great source for understanding how we got to live in this age as it is now and um, how we can see it. And his book, A Secular Age, is highly academic, Highly uh, requires a lot of philosophical training, uh, which I don't have. So, luckily, um, another philosopher, another Canadian philosopher, has written a commentary on how to read um, a secular age. That one. Go on, I went for that one. Which is called um, How Not to Be Secular by James K.A. Smith. 
And so I just want to show or uh, display five steps that have occurred that have shifted um, between the pre-modern person um, to the modern person and, and how uh, we've shifted from um, unbelief to be almost unthinkable to the modern age where unbelief uh, is the norm for most people. So first, the first step that Taylor describes is the development of a buffered self. And most of this is, um, I haven't written quotes and stuff, but this is quite word for word, so all credit to not me. So this buffered self, uh, the pre-modern world was full of enchantment. Uh, there were spirits everywhere, there were gods, there were um, traditions that had to be upheld because uh, the human being was considered to be porous. Uh, the human being was considered to be able to be acted upon by these things out there, by spirits and by things like that. And so uh, there was a real sense of vulnerability uh, to be human. To be vul- you were vulnerable to uh, these things that could do things to you, and so you needed the protection of God. To, you know, it was a huge risk to step apart from the protection of God. Um, it was a big step towards being vulnerable to these things. As uh, we have come to give away, um, you know, as with this, uh, the Enlightenment and um, rational scientific understanding, um, we kind of understand how things work now. We know how germs work. We know how, um, I guess, weather is a lot more um, understandable, if not predictable. Um, and so we have decided, uh, I guess there has been this shift where um, we aren't risking it with the gods anymore. We've got this buffer and we are just um, able to consider. And, and Taylor describes this as meaning shifting from things to what we perceive to be things. So I hope this makes sense. But um, uh, I guess what I'm trying to describe is a person is able to um, be safe in their own mind. They don't have to, they're not vulnerable to things outside. And this loss of vulnerability has made it much easier not to believe in God. We're not chancing ourselves to the outside world's forces without God anymore. The second thing he described uh, is the change from the pre modern communal world lived for the common good. Sorry, in a pre-modern world where everything is lived for the common good, the social bond was sacred. The collective good depended on the social rituals of the community. This was a world where there just wasn't room for private preference. It wasn't just an individual's own business to break ranks. There was an immense common motivation to bring a person back into line. This meant that disbelief had communal repercussions. In comes the buffered self, freed from spirits and gods, and it becomes aware of the possibility for disengagement, the possibility to disbelieve. The we becomes not a seamless cloth, but just a collection of individuals. And this has a diminishing effect on um, what happens when an individual makes a decision. So what else has happened? These things are hopefully helping you to see some of the things that are as close to us as the air that we breathe, um, but maybe don't think about noticing. Third point, uh, the third idea that Taylor dis- uh, discusses is that we have lowered the bar for f- what is considered to be human flourishing. Uh, we have changed the requirements 
that describe and count as a life well lived. To the pre-modern man, the main thing in consideration when thinking about a life well lived was eternity. What did eternity require? The highs and lows of what domestic life demanded paled in comparison to the requirements of living for eternity. And basically, living for eternity meant having an ascetic relationship with the pleasures and the demands of the mundane domestic life. Uh, This also in the pre-modern world gave rise to the solely religious vocations, the priests and the nuns who separated themselves from the domestic work to pray on behalf of the people, to take care of the religious requirements. And this was something that the whole community was in on, that kings and people, even the peasants, they patronized the monasteries and abbeys and they appreciated. And this was like a communal deal that some people took care of the religious work and, and that were supported to do so. But living in this time of tension with the weight of eternity was difficult. Uh, the weight of living for eternity was heavy. And so they had festivals and seasons, which I guess enabled people to let off steam. Um, things that have, like we've got weak um, shadows of, of the things that uh, they used to have to let off steam. They used to have a thing called Carnival, and we, like a weak sort of show of that is like what we've got now through Halloween and Mardi Gras and that sort of stuff. But these, these upending times, these seasons where you didn't have to worry about the weight of the eternal allowed people to let off steam, and I kind of helped them bear that weight. And so in our modern world, what do we do? Rather than maintain this equilibrium between uh, the demands of domestic life and the expectations of the eternal life, Taylor says that we've just eliminated the tension altogether. In the main, this has meant stop being burdened by eternal demands and locating ultimate flourishing, ultimate success, ultimate definition of a life well lived just in this life. Two more quick ones. Um, another shift has been the pre-modern man uh, didn't count time or think about time the way that we think about time as an ever-extending tick-tock, tick-tock uh, in a trajectory. They thought about time in terms of holy time at holy times of the year and then domestic time. We take for granted that this is self-evident, that time is linear and that it ticks ever onward. And to point this straight at our Pentecostal tradition, Uh, Consider our response to Easter and Christmas these days. Gone is is most of the sense of the holiness of time, and in is utility, choice, holiday, and making the most most of time off. And the last thing that he described is the difference uh, between the cosmos and a universe. Um, I guess this is on a bigger scale, that idea of being porous, but they believed in a cosmos where the earth was part of the heavens, and the heavens could uh, impact on earth, and um, as opposed to a universe. And that has shifted people's understanding and the difference between creation and nature. It makes it possible to imagine a world of autonomous, independent meaning, unhooked from any sort of transcendent experience. Cool. Um, thank you. Good work. Let's have another, like, whew. we can relax a little bit. That's like... It's a big deal, but hopefully it helps um, to start at least the idea of thinking about what are the things that we take for granted, what are the things that we don't even see, Um, and those are the types of things that I'm hoping to encourage to help us to see our culture, because when we can see our culture a bit more, it helps us to be able to speak into that 
Um, and that's what I'm hopeful to help everybody consider um, ideas about next week. In frequency, our post-primary group on Sunday mornings, we recently talked about the word prophecy. And I asked all of the young people, what do you guys think that the word prophecy means? There were some answers that you might expect. There were, um, you know, seeing the future or, um, you know, knowing things that you didn't know before and that sort of thing. And we talked about how those things are part of the answer, but that most often prophets spoke uh, into the situation now, what God's word was now for what was happening. And we also talked about how prophets were often called to be living symbols to the people. Many of the prophets were asked to live out these really bizarre, symbolic lives to the people before they then um, preached messages to the people. And Jeremiah was one of those prophets. For a number of years, Jeremiah uh, was asked by God to wear a, a yoke for oxen uh, whenever he spoke um, as a, an act that showed that uh, this oxen, this um, captivity was coming. God had him buy pottery and smash it as part of his message. He bought an expensive linen garment and ruined it in a cave. I know. Bad choice. No, it's not. Um, and when the city was being overrun, when defeat was guaranteed, God had him buy, symbolically purchase, his ancestors' land. To the ridicule of all the people, he paid market value in cash as a symbol that one day God would return Israel to this land, that the exile would not be forever. And in preparation for today, I came across this phrase that I just feel is such a calling to the church today. Uh, if you've been around church for a while, you've, you've probably heard the phrase, the priesthood of all believers. In particular, if you've been part of a Baptist church, you would have heard this phrase, the priesthood of all believers. But in this moment where Christian values and secular values drift further apart, I feel that God is t calling the church to take up this symbolic living mantle um, and become the prophethood of all believers. The prophethood of all believers. A living group of people who have taken up the responsibility to live life not according to the prevailing winds of culture, not according to fear, but in response to the revelation that God has indeed entered the world he made in the person of Jesus Christ and he is carrying on his care for it, that his words are trustworthy and that in time he will make all things new. Leslie Newbegin picked, packed up two suitcases uh, in 1974 and boarded the bus home from India. When he arrived in England, his homeland was nothing like the homeland that he had left when he had started his, started his mission in 1936. He was astounded to hear on his arrival home the Bengali dialect of the culture that he had been serving and ministering to. And Leslie Newbegin was one of the first people to recognize that the West is a mission field. He wrote a highly influential paper in January 87 called, Can the West Be Converted? At a point where, like today, Christianity was thriving in Africa and Asia, the parts of the world where modernism was the main, uh, it was having a dissolving effect on religious belief, and including Christians. And this paper called Can the West Be Converted 
doesn't answer the question that it is titled with. Uh, Newbegin used to say, God only knows when people asked him. But he described the type of person who, if the West was to be converted, who would, what would be the type of person who would convert the West? And here are three characteristics of the type of person who will convert the West. Firstly, the person who will convert the West has deeply embedded Christian practices which reorder their joys. I mean, how was it that these useless, disobedient Israelites who loved their idols so much carried on as Israelites throughout the exile period? How come they weren't wiped out within minutes of getting there? Eugene Peterson says this about on exile. Jarred out of their everydayness by the exile, they embarked on a search. They settled down to find out what it meant to be God's people in a place they didn't want to be. The result was that this became the most creative period in the entire sweep of Hebrew history. They did not lose their identity, they discovered it. They learned to pray in deeper and more life-changing ways than ever. They wrote and copied and pondered the vast revelation that had come down to them from Moses and the prophets. And further on in the same chapter, he says, The exile was the crucible of Israel's faith. In order to have a chance of converting the West, we must be people who are deeply connected to these Christian practices which reorder what we love. Praying, reading, reflection, meditation, the works. The second characteristic of a person who will convert the West is a person who walks with God through pain and suffering. In our suffering, allergic culture, what is our witness like when life is hard? Does suffering sap our joy to nothing? Do we become permanent grumps? Do we become bitter or do we continue to have enthusiasm for life? Lastly, Newbegin says that the person who will convert the West has plain old gospel resolve. Come what may, I will follow Christ. Culture changes, sometimes with a thump, sometimes slowly, so slowly that we barely notice it. When it does, or when you eventually collide with it, we are dislocated, we feel adrift, we are disconnected, we lose our sense of home. In a small sense or in a large sense, we feel like we're in exile, being disconnected from our real home. For Israel, this was a physical exile, a departure from the land that God had given them, a departure from their homeland, a departure from their temple and the places of worship. For those who were taken to exile, it was an abrupt and a shocking change. But their children and their children's children have only really ever known the air of Babylon. That was the only culture that ever breathed. When it comes to living in our late modern post-Christian culture today, you might fit and feel that identity of the first group of exiles or the second or the third generation. Wherever you fit, you needed to start to do the hard work of understanding and seeing this culture and the things that we absolutely take for granted. Charles Taylor has helped us reflect by shining the lens on five things. The belief that we are buffered from the outside and not vulnerable to spirits. The belief that we are individuals and not a collective seamless cloth. The lowering of the bar of what is considered to be a life well lived. Construing time as a tick-tock, tick-tock, ever onward resource and seeing the universe as closed rather than a cosmos with a connection to the heavens. In this environment of exile where we all live, I think that we are called to become living symbols, to take up a mantle of becoming the prophethood of all believers. 
confident that God is trustworthy and confident that he is making all things new. Leslie Newbegin shows three elements of this symbolic life, a life deeply involved with the formative Christian practices, a life that walks with God through suffering rather than avoiding it, complaining about it or becoming bitter, a life lived with gospel resolve. Come what may, I will follow Christ. So I just want to finish today. What do we do if we find ourselves enticed by Babylon? If only there were an earth-shattering, imagination-shocking vision of the spiritual realm to wake us up to the true reality written by a poetic, prophetic pastor to his congregation to blast them out of the lull of Babylon and back to their senses. Well, as it happens, you'll find one at the back of your Bible. John, the author of Revelation, gave messages to seven churches that he was the pastor over. And this, as I was preparing this week, I just really felt again and again to invite us to consider those messages individually and personally and pray um, about those before God. To what extent does do these letters to the churches in Revelation um, apply to me or parts of my life? Are there elements of my life that need the critique of the church of Sardis, the church of Ephesus, or the church of Laodicea? Each of these messages run in the same format, a familiar fra- uh, a description of Jesus, uh, a critique, and then a familiar phrase followed by a promise. That familiar phrase, or a phrase I hope will become familiar, brings us back to where we started. Whoever has he- ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Father, would you make us strong? Would you give us eyes to see? And most of all, would you give us ears to hear what you're saying? Give us ears to hear what your word um, is challenging us with so that we may put it into practice. We may, may be like the good soil that produces a crop of 30, 60, or 100 times. Amen.